ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Andrew McDermott. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program author and professor Robert Schettinger to continue discussing his new book, Darwin's Bluff, the mystery of the book Darwin never finished. Dr. Schettinger is the Wilford A. Johnson Chair of Biblical Studies and Professor of Religion at Luther College in Iowa. He holds a PhD in Religious Studies from Temple University and is the author of several books, most recently The Mystery of Evolutionary Mechanisms, Darwinian Biology's Grand Narrative of Triumph and the Subversion of Religion. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. Well, in part one of our conversation, we started separating Charles Darwin the man from Charles Darwin the mythological icon. You explained the importance of a comprehensive engagement with Darwin's private correspondence and how that helped you gain insight into his public persona and his work. You also shared with us some of the rhetorical strategies Darwin used to manage his public persona and accomplish his end goal of making his mark in science. And we discussed his early love of geology and all the experiments he conducted to find support for his theories and what those things can teach us about Darwin the man. Well, today we're going to continue separating myth from man as we look at his writing of The Origin of Species, the reaction to that book, and the mystery of the follow-up book that was supposed to come after it. Now, some Darwin popularizers and biographers hail On the Origin of Species as Darwin's magnum opus, his masterpiece. Tell us why that's more mythology than reality. Okay, well, as I said in the previous episode, when Darwin sent out presentation copies of The Origin to his um, scientific um, collaborators and friends, uh, he told everyone uh, of them to read The Origin of Species as merely an abstract. It's just an abstract of the theory. Um, it does not contain all the evidence and authorities and everything that one would expect in a, in a work like that, um, but that it was merely an abstract and that he would follow up that abstract with a much more comprehensive uh, treatment of his, of his theory. Okay. And in your book, you report that he had a lot of insecurity about publishing The Origin. What's the reason typically given for that and what might be the real reason behind his reticence? Um. Well, I think a lot of scholars have recognized that he was very insecure um, in the theory, and 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 uh, that he didn't he didn't want to engender a lot of he didn't want to have to face a lot of criticism, and so that sort of forced him to to put off publishing for a long time. Now, John Van Wy has has um, argued against that and said that he was just too busy with other work, and and that's the reason that he wasn't reticent to publish his theory. He was just too busy with other work. And it just took him a while to get around with it, but I think that's that's wrong. Um, I think the the correspondence shows a very very reticent person who who wants on the one hand uh, to publish the theory and and to become known, on the other hand is afraid to publish the theory because he doesn't want all the the, the backlash that he expected would come, and so it left him in a real real quandary about what to do, and if Charles Lyell had not prompted him to publish something, I think it's possible that he never would have published anything on species. Uh, I think that's at least a, a possibility. Wow. Yeah, he was he was publishing on other topics in natural history, but he wasn't, he was kind of saving the species work, but ultimately was sort of rushed into it. Um, and that insecurity, you know, a lot of um, biographers you mentioned say that 
it, they kind of explain that as, oh, he didn't think the world was ready for the theory or he was just afraid of the backlash um, of that theory. But not a lot um, of people seem to wrestle with the idea that perhaps he wasn't confident enough in the amount of evidence he had Correct. or the amount of support for the theory. Yeah. I mean, that's that's certainly uh, an option he, as well. He knew he would not be able to convince skeptical readers. And so he kept putting off and putting off and putting off and trying to accumulate more and more and more and more evidence uh, because he didn't want to just come out with a, a sketch of the theory. And then people say, well, where's the evidence? OK, you haven't given us any evidence. And so he he just kept deferring and deferring and deferring um, until he had he, he was sort of forced into publishing. Yeah, yeah. And he, he had written over 300,000 words of a follow-up book uh, by the time The Origin came out, if I'm not mistaken. And so he, he definitely had had material that he mm. was amassing and, and trying to collect, but for some reason he was hesitant, and we'll, we'll mention more about that in a, in a moment. Now, around 1845, Darwin put his species work aside and spent eight years of his life painstakingly studying barnacles. Why did he do that? I think he was sort of forced into that by um, the botanist Joseph Dalton Hooker, uh, who he was very close to, who recognized that Darwin, who, who knew about Darwin's species theory, Darwin had shared it with him fairly, fairly early on. Um, and I think Hooker recognized that Darwin had a tendency um, for, you know, sort of flights of fancy to just sort of come up with ideas and and develop them without really doing rigorous scientific work um, to sort of justify his position uh, to or his ability to come out with such a theory as, as, as the origin of species. And so I think it was Hooker that sort of, um, you know, sort of cajoled him into taking some time, put the species work aside, and take a class of organisms that hadn't been described yet and just do some very detailed, uh, systematic um, investigation and study uh, and publishing uh, and make, make a, a, con a real contribution to science. People will respect you more if they've seen the barnacle work and know that you've made a real contribution before you come out with your theory. So I think he was kind of pushed into that uh, by, by Hooker. Okay. But definitely willing to spend years doing it. And I think that speaks to what we talked about in the last episode, yeah. his desperation for that respect and that mark uh, yeah. to be made. And I think time. he recognized that Hooker was right and that he really need to do, did, he needed to do this. And so he did put the, his other work aside and, and he diligently worked on barnacles for eight years. Um, and he did get respect for that work. Yeah, rightly so, earning his scientific stripes, if you will, in the community. Yeah. Okay. Well, you quote an 1856 letter from eminent geologist Charles Lyell, one of Darwin's heroes, encouraging Darwin to put his ideas out there. Quote, out with the theory and let it take date and be cited and be understood. So was this part of why Darwin rushed into publishing his abstract? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I mean, he didn't... He, Lyell was, was pushing him to publish because he was afraid that Darwin was going to be forestalled that somebody else would come up with the theory and publish it before him. Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted Darwin to get the credit. So he was trying to push Darwin. Darwin didn't want to write, didn't want to come out with just some small abstract um, or sketch of the theory uh, because he couldn't contain all the evidence. So Lyle, uh, 
Lyle's prompting, I think, led Darwin into uh, eventually starting to write the big book on species, the 300,000 words of, of at least of what of the incomplete manuscript. What forced the publication of The Origin of Species was when um, he, he received um, a manuscript from Alfred Russell Wallace, who was in Southeast Asia. And Wallace had sent him this manuscript, um, like 20-page manuscript, of a, of a species theory that very much paralleled Darwin's. And so the fear that he would be forestalled came true. Um, and that's when he decided to put the big book aside, abstract the big book, take, take the big book and make a mere abstract of it to get it out there. Um, and that became the origin of species. So I think it was, it was Wallace's letter and manuscript that finally forced Darwin to publish something. Okay. But uh, I bet he was glad to have Lyle's support of it overall. Um, well, after Origin of Species was out, Darwin braced himself for an onslaught of response. Uh, but after garnering the support of Joseph Hooker, Thomas Henry Huxley, and Charles Lyell, to him, the whole world could be against it and it wouldn't matter anymore. In a letter to Hooker, he writes, Nothing will ever convince me that three such men with so much diversified knowledge and so well accustomed to search for truth could err greatly. What does this reveal about Darwin and his relationships with these men? Yeah, well, I, I think it, it really shows his insecurity. He had decided very early on after publishing The Origin uh, that he was going to try to kind of keep a scorecard. And as long as his closest associates were supportive of him, um, he was going to allow that to, to, to boost his confidence. And he, he was, wasn't going to worry about what anybody else had to say even though it's clear that he really did care about what other people had to say. Um, so these, these three became kind of his, what I called his trinity, his trinity of support. Um, but even they did not go all the way with him. Hooker may have, but um, Huxley, while he, although he liked the way Darwin went about trying to answer the question of the origin of species, um, he continued to hold to the idea that until artificial selection uh, produced a new species, that Darwin's idea was, was just a proposition and, and wasn't really proved in any way. Um, and Lyell was, um, while he supported Darwin and was very good friends with Darwin, it's not clear that he ever fully got on board either with um, um, any, and especially he, he um, Lyell never could accept that natural selection was the um, ex explanation for the origin of human beings. Okay. Uh, and the human mind. Um, and he was with Wallace on that, that natural selection couldn't explain um, the coming into the world of, of consciousness and mind. Mm. Well, after publishing his Origin of Species, did Darwin jump right back into preparing his big follow-up book that would give more evidence and satisfy his supporters and silence his critics? It looks from um, from his notebooks like he, he started to... Um, for about a year or so, um, but then he put it aside and he decided he was going to publish a work on orchids instead. He had been working on orchids um, and uh, the, the ways in which the orchid flowers are arranged to ensure um, fertilization by, by insect, cross-fertilization by insects. Um, and so he had been working on that for some time. And so it looks like he put the big book aside and he decided he was going to follow up the origin with a monograph on orchids, which he did in 1862. Hmm. And, you know, those who corresponded with him, uh, I forget who said it first, but they called this, uh, uh, oh, a flank 
movement on his enemy, uh, which which is an idea that he either knew already or adopted after he read that in the letter. Was was his flank movement successful then to to pivot to orchids and say, okay, well, let's move on and give you some more uh, more more to think about? Yeah, well, I mean, the question was why why did he go and and um, publish this orchid volume instead of finishing his big book and publishing it? Um, I think it's pretty clear that he decided that um, that readers would be impressed by what he called, and this was his word, the contrivances that one finds in orchid flowers to ensure their cross-fertilization by insects. And he thought that that would, um, that would give readers the, the evidence that they needed to see the, uh, the power of natural selection at work. Um, and so Asa Gray, his, his, um, his, his scientific friend at Harvard, uh, was the one that said, um, you know, brilliant flank movement on the enemy. And, and Darwin wrote back and said, uh, well, you're the only one who, who noted that that was my real reason for doing, uh, for, for publishing the, the Orchid book is a flank movement on the enemy. So instead of coming out with a big book, he put before his so-called enemies the, um, uh, the Orchid book, hoping that that would provide the evidence that people were looking for for natural selection. Uh, but it backfired. People love the Orchid book. It got all kinds of positive reviews. I've read it. It's a great book. But people started reading it as evidence for natural theology, not natural selection. Um, seeing in the contrivances uh, in the orchids um, the work of design um, in nature and not natural selection. So it kind of backfired on him. Hmm. Ironic that he would uh, give us a contribution to something that could be considered arguing for design. Yeah, Well, absolutely. <laughs> The, uh, the eminent uh, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould has suggested that that anticipated uh, second book on species, the big one, wasn't even necessary, that he succeeded with just his abstract. What's wrong with that idea? Is that part of the mythology of Darwin? I think that's part of the mythology. I think that's trying to explain away um, the fact that Darwin led uh, his correspondence, well, both in the origin itself and in his correspondence, he led people to expect to see the big book. Um, in several places in the Origin of Species, he said, um, you know, he, he cites a, a principle and he says, I have a long catalog of facts that support this, which I can't give now, but I will give in a future work. So he led people to expect to see the big book with all the evidence. Um, and he, he, his correspondents were writing to him saying, when are you going to finish? When, when are we going to see the big book? We, we, we want to be able to evaluate the arguments made in the origin, but we need to see all the evidence. And you tell us you have the evidence, and when are you going to come out with this big book? So I think um, Gould has, has totally ignored the, the correspondence here um, and the origin itself, in which Darwin created the expectation for the big book, and people were waiting with bated breath to see it, and but then he deprived them of it. Uh, he never finished it or published it. Okay. Other than expanding the first two chapters on on artificial selection in his 1868 work um, on um, variation under domestication. Yeah. Well, and Gould made these comments in uh, 1975 when Cambridge University Press did, in fact, publish Darwin's unfinished big book. Uh, now you've read this. You've you've uh, gone through it. What can you tell us about its strengths and its weaknesses? Um, well, I think after reading it, you understand why Darwin did not complete it and, and publish it. 
um, because it doesn't really have any more evidence for natural selection than what's in the origin. And the origin is devoid of evidence for natural selection. And I think he recognized that, you know, there's just a lot of facts crammed into this big book manuscript, but it doesn't really demonstrate um, or, or prove the action of natural selection. Um, and that's what people were looking for. And so I think he recognized that um, the evidence really isn't there and he just kind of abandoned the project even after creating all the expectation for it. Hmm. And 300,000 words. that that uh, Did he assume that it would get published posthumously or, or did he just say <laughs> nix it altogether? Um, I don't, my guess is that he, he wouldn't have expected it to ever get published um, but he didn't get rid of the, the, the handwritten manuscript. Um, he kept it and it survived in his papers so that um, um, Stouffer from, from University of Wisconsin and, and other scholars uh, could transcribe it and publish it in 1975 so that we could actually see it. Now, you write in the big book, uh, you write that the big book. Um, sorry, let me redo that one. Now, you write that in the big book, Darwin doubles down on his analogy between natural and artificial selection. How does this end up undermining his argument for the power of an unplanned, undirected process creating new species? Um, well, as, as we said before, um, artificial selection is, is um, future-oriented and, and directional. Uh, animal breeders uh, know ahead of time what kind of variety they want to produce, and they can select based on that future goal. Natural selection, in Darwin's view, doesn't have that ability to uh, to you know see to look to the future and and to try to create something, um, some sort of um, you know future orientation. Um, and so I think that um, his his attempt to to base natural selection on the analogy with artificial selection uh, really kind of undermines the whole argument for natural selection. Mm. And interesting to see that it was also in this big book uh, that he had promised. Well, the final chapter of your book seeks to rescue other aspects of Darwin and his work from the distorting effects of Darwinian mythology. Here you show us how the mythology has stunted authentic scientific development by perpetuating certain ideological commitments. You explore topics like slavery, race, eugenics, and sex. We don't have time to go into all those things today, but... What I'd like to end on is your discussion of the impact that Darwinian mythology can have on our understanding of evolution, as well as the ability of competing theories to get a fair shake. You call it the grand narrative of Darwinian triumph. How has that been a disservice to science, and how might we get beyond it? Well, I think this, what I call the grand narrative of Darwinian triumph, um, really has sort of undermined um, our ability to, to really... Um, understand what's what's going on in 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 biology uh this idea that um you know darwin sort of solved the problem of the origin of species in 1859 and and everything after that is just kind of footnotes to darwin um i think as has really undermined uh the the, the true search for the origin of species um uh, everything has to be done in the darwinian frame uh, but I think there's ample evidence that I give in the book that the Darwinian framework simply doesn't work. There's there's just too many problems with it. Um, you know, we know that um, you know uh, that that Stephen Meyer's work on on the Cambrian explosion shows that um, you know 
disparity in body plans occurred very early in the history of life um, in a way that is complete opposite of, of what Darwin's theory would predict. Um, and there's all kinds of other issues that natural selection simply can't uh, deal with, the development of, of information in biological organisms and, um, and things like that. So I, I think it has stunted uh, real scientific um, advancement in understanding the origin of species by just assuming that Darwin figured it out and everything after uh, is just kind of a footnote to Darwin. Yeah, yeah. Now, if Darwin himself could take a time machine, right, and come to 2024, would how would he feel about the things that have been discovered in the last 50 to 100 years and this this uh, revolution in microbiology that's that's exposing all these things he didn't know? Would he have second guesses now? <laughs> so that's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, um, I mean, Darwin was such a collector of, of facts and information. I think he would be absolutely fascinated by by uh, findings of modern biology. Um, you know, maybe he would recognize, hey, you know, I, I, I got it wrong in 1859. This, um, I, I don't know how he would respond to you know, what we know now uh, about the nature of the cell. To, to him, cell was just a little piece of jelly under a, under a microscope. Yeah. And to know all of the complex functions and, and molecular machines and everything that's going on at the, at the cellular and molecular levels in, in organisms, uh, I think he'd be fascinated and just blown away by it. What he would make of it, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have studied uh, so many of his letters. I think you you cite what is it, two hundred, two hundred and fifty? Yeah, around two hundred and fifty. Okay, so you you've uh, really delved into this to a, a great degree. What what was the most surprising uh, or inspiring thing that you learned? Maybe you can't pick one, but hmm. um, that's that's hard to say. Um, you know, I I mean, I went into this already being somewhat critical of, of, of the origin of species as, as, a, as a scientific work. So I, I didn't come to that through this process. Um, I think one of the surprising things was that I was surprised how enamored I became with Darwin, with all his faults. Um, just coming to, to, to see the real human person behind the mythology that I had heard for most of my life. Um, I really became enamored with the guy, um, even though I'm critical of his work. I, I just find him absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And as you say, the guy, you know, behind the mythology, underneath it all, uh, separate from the mythology, happens to be a much more interesting individual. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he's human. He's like us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's not just the old guy with the long gray beard that you see everywhere. Um, he's a real person. Yeah, going beyond the icon. Well, Robert, thank you for taking the time to discuss your new book with us. Uh, I, for one, have been learning lots in my reading of it. And readers, I encourage you to, or I should say listeners, uh, I, I encourage you to grab your copy as well. And we'll tell you where to go in a moment. Uh, but I just want to thank you, Robert, for the time you've taken to unpack all this and dive into it. It's uh, really adding to our understanding of Darwin the Man. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can read some hearty endorsements of the book and order your own copy of Darwin's Bluff at discovery.org bluff. That's discovery.org bluff. 
And if you haven't listened to part one of our conversation, go back and be sure to catch it. Very interesting stuff. Well, for ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott with Robert Schettinger. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.